as much as we would like to relegate that horror to the past, there's something we also recognize about that sense of vengeance or recognize about that sense of, of the degree to which we can catch ourselves dehumanizing people we disagree with. Hi, I'm Joanne Wallace, and this is the Blythe Festival podcast. Today, you'll hear part two of my conversation with Blythe's artistic director, Gil Garrett. Yes, we are talking today about all things Donnelly. Today, Gil tells us about the design and staging of his new productions. He also talks a bit about why and how he adapted James Rainey's original trilogy. And then he shares his thoughts on why Blythe audiences seem to have such a hunger for this rich and complex story. I wanted to ask you, what is what can the audiences expect to see when they come to see this production? What's special about this particular staging? These shows are just so vivid. I mean, mm. that's the thing that I mean, audiences have been been raving about that because they they're they're relentless, right? They they start with all of this incredible music. You have uh, a uh, ensemble of actors par excellence, right? I mean, they, these ten performers are incredible all of them um they're all bringing their a game to it um and for the most part like especially sticks and stones and saint nicholas hotel hardly anyone ever leaves a stage right they're just constantly constantly doing everything is just moving and moving and moving um and i think that's the that's the incredible thing with these shows and also that they're they're full of humor too they're funny they're um, there's all kinds of silly things that happen in them too. There's a great character in Sticks and Stones who reappears in the other plays um, called the Showman. And the Showman is anachronistic. He appears um, several times throughout the plays and he is totally out of time. He is not in the 1800s. He's clearly like in the 1970s and having a great old silly time. And he's changing the story and telling the wrong story. And he's hilarious and sings songs and all this stuff. And He's taken from the original. I was going to ask you that. Is he in Rainey's original works? Yeah, he's in Rainey's original works. Um, I've expanded him a little bit. And then uh, uh, James Dallas Smith, who plays the role, has brought some incredible ideas to it, too. And um, I personally painted those paintings. Did you? <laughs> <that> I, <yeah. laughs> oh, I have to clarify this for our audience. If you get a chance to come and see this show, there's a wonderful scene where the medicine man's... Um, show a wagon shows up with a kind of a hand cranked um, pictures paintings of the the terrible Donnelly's the terrible tragedy of the Donnelly's so you're telling us that you painted those yeah 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 I painted those um, uh, they're very funny they're very caricatures funny. Yeah, 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 yeah 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 wonderful oh it's just one of those things he has this line about how he's he's had these paintings um, commissioned for the audience's historical enlightenment and so then <laughs> I made them as intentionally silly and uh, yeah it's just very funny did your set designer let you do that yeah, Beth, 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 Beth was Beth was totally on board she um uh, uh i we talked about it a lot what they would be and how they would work and then there was just you know one night we did it very late at night too it was like you know after 11 o'clock and i just kind of we laid out this big canvas and then i sketched them all out and we laughed a lot and then uh she helped me paint them and yeah it was really really fantastic 
Can you talk to us a little bit about the set design? It's extraordinary. Um, so Beth, one of the things that she very, very early on talked about was the materials of the day, mm-hmm. right? And and um, that everything is built out of wood um, and uh, and stones. And so there's sticks and stones. Um, but we set about, one of the things she wanted to do was to actually cover. So the harvest stage for anyone who has um, seen it before uh, or who hasn't seen it, um, is built out of two recycled shipping containers um, uh, and a, a massive stage is attached to it. But that's the the, the core of the, the back wall is actually these shipping containers. And Beth had the idea that what she wanted to do was cover them entirely with raw wood, raw lumber. The Beth Gill is speaking about here is Beth Cates. Beth is a brilliant set and lighting designer, and she also does some astonishing work with video projections. Some of her most incredible work appears in the finale of the third Donnelly play, Handcuffs, so don't miss it. You'll hear more from Beth on an upcoming episode, but she told us this beautiful story about accessing the lumber she wanted to use for the Donnelly set design. So the inspiration was derived from the stage, but also from from the land and being outside. So these trees, trees that are being felled, this new world that's being built as it, as land's being settled and cultivated, this idea of wood came into being. And then by some miracle, as things happen with Donnelly Plays, you open the door. So we started talking about wood. And that's a lot of space to cover, right? The stage is is quite enormous at its widest part. It's it's almost 50 feet wide. Mm-hmm. So it's this huge two-story stage. And to cover it with that much wood was a, a lot, oh, a big yeah. undertaking. And as it turns out, Gil's neighbor had a whole bunch of windfall and milled down all these trees into planks. And we basically bought 1,600 board feet of wood from Gil's neighbor. So the wood itself is from the land here. Um, So that's from Bayfield. So it's come half an hour down the road. Um, And it's from here. And that felt really important too, that these are the trees that are the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the trees that we're talking about in the play. One of the things that is extraordinary about these particular productions of the the Rainy stories um, Myself and Beth Cates, the designer, uh, together created a, a world um, where things are rich and recognizable, but where there is very little verisimilitude, right? So uh, by that, I mean like, um, you know, objects that are on stage um, turn into anything that we need for a scene. But it is, again, to constantly remind the audience that what they're watching is is pretend, because I think that there's something so critical about playing together audience and and performers and when we remind each other of that that we're we're all just pretending we're 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 pretending that you know the audience is for the most part pretending that we're not here and that we're somehow just like secretly watching this uh, all unfold and that the performers are pretending that they are in a different time that they are different people that they are and that sense of play is, I think, critical community building. 
Yeah, and it's also the the space, the yeah. liminal space between exactly. the audience and the performers where the magic happens. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you about uh, your adaptation because mm. you have newly adapted these works for this production. Could you tell us why it, you felt that that was necessary? Yeah, I fell in love with these plays as a teenager, actually, um, and uh, I. Their poetry, their energy, their um, their radicalism too. I'd never read anything like it. Right, the the um, the leaping uh, uh, off the page that the, these characters um, were so vivid. I knew from the moment that I, I decided to try to do all three of them that I was going to have to, uh, uh, at the very least, abridge them significantly. The shortest of them was three and a half hours long. Oh. Um, the longest of them uh, was pushing five hours. It was four and a half hours long. Um, and uh, uh, audiences have changed a lot in the way that we take in work now. Um, the other thing was... Um, the idea of using a single ensemble mm -hmm. to do all three shows, uh, which in and of itself was quite an endeavor. Um, so committing to a, a single ensemble of 10 actors and, and going through these works and saying, okay, well, how can we tell this story with 10 performers? Um, and already the 10 performers, as you saw the other night, are playing dozens of parts each. Um, and then the other thing was, I think, Aesthetics have changed. Times, I mean, since 1972, the, the the things we expect to see on stage and the way that there has been um, uh, a lot changed in the way that we take in work. For instance, the original Rainy Donnelly's had a lot of unison speaking, a lot of choral unison speaking. Um, and I do think uh, audiences tend to have less appetite for that today. In the original Sticks and Stones, for instance, there is a lot of jumping across time where we go from after 1880 back to 1840, then to 1870, then to 1820. Then we mm -hmm. go to, and we jump around all over the place. Um, and I did uh, look to, you know, for lack of a better term, like kind of uh, linearize the chronology. And uh, I was very much focused on the Blythe audience. That, that was who I was crafting this work for yeah. and that we would be outdoors i had the privilege to be in the house last night for sticks and stones and it is very accessible yeah. and yet it still maintains a little bit of that um feel of something coming out of a piece of canada's history that was a critical part of it was the accessibility thing yeah right like yeah. that was very much for me was ensuring that this was accessible mm -hmm. but the, the very notion that somehow these plays don't get done on a regular basis by professional companies. Um, you know, even schools hardly touch them anymore. And I really think they are, uh, um, you know, an, a critical and thrilling part of the canon. Yeah. Um, and so to find a way to make them accessible, find a way for, um, you know, I, I know it's a cliche, but I think it's true to find a way to welcome another generation into these works too, right? You're listening to the Blythe Festival podcast. I'm Joanne Wallace, and today I'm speaking again with Blythe's artistic director, Gil Garrett. When we come back, Gil talks about why Blythe audiences can't seem to get enough of these Donnellys, and he also gets personal about his own stake in this story. Please check out our other episodes in this series. 
Part one of my conversation with Gil covers the real history of the Donnelly family, the importance of Rainey's original plays, and why Gil thinks today is the right time to re-examine this difficult story. We also have conversations with playwrights Matt Murray and Andrew Moody. Both these writers have shows opening at Blythe this summer. Now, here's a quick shout-out to you. If you're a member, a donor, or a sponsor of the Blythe Festival, none of this work can happen without your generous support, and we so appreciate having you as our partners in this important work of telling Canada's stories. So thank you so very much. And now, back to my conversation with Gil. I actually wanted to ask you about this. Um, This is a peculiarly Blythe sort of story. I mean, geographically, it's close by. Blythe itself is dedicated to producing Canadian work, new Canadian work, and developing it. Can you talk to us a little bit about Blythe's history with this play? Because you've mentioned the Outdoor Donnellys and a number of other productions of the Donnelly story. So what is it about this Donnelly story that the Blythe Festival has such an affinity for? I think, um, yeah, that's very, very true. <laughs> um, and it goes right back to um, uh, very, very early on. I think it was uh, the, the first, so Sticks and Stones was done once before in Blythe, I think in 1989. Um, I might have the year wrong, but it's roughly 89. Um, could be 1990. It was directed by Terry Tweed. Um, and, uh, but there was also, uh, a play called Them Donnelly's that was written by Ted Johns, um, that was done in Blythe. We also had, a um, uh, the Outdoor Donnelly's was this, you know, incredible, uh, spectacle event that we did, which actually had 11 professional actors and 49 local people mm-hmm. who were in that show. We had seven different venues all over town. Um, and audiences actually went to the fairgrounds and then got onto horse-drawn wagons or a couple of tractor-drawn wagons too. And they would go off and travel throughout the town to go venue to venue to venue. Um, and you couldn't see all the pieces in the same night, which was part of the conceit too, that Paul Thompson, who directed the show, wanted audiences to have a fractured experience so that you would actually be when everyone met up at the fairgrounds for the grandstand show at the end, which was the kind of the, the culmination of it all, um, uh, that everyone had seen different parts of the story and that they could be spreading rumors to each other of what had happened. And this was a, a, a really exciting project. And the audiences keep coming back to see this story again yeah. and again. And I think they do because of all of the reasons that I, 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 I said kind of at the beginning, this idea of, the complexity of it, the mythology of it, that that it is uh, a rich and a complicated story. And I think that they also keep coming back looking for deeper understanding of it. Um, I think they also, I think also there's something about the ongoing grappling with it too. What happened was, was horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... As much as we would like to relegate that horror to the past, there's something we also recognize about that sense of vengeance or recognize about that sense of of the degree to which we can catch ourselves dehumanizing people we disagree with. And that is, uh, I think, as much as we want to think that that's a, a contemporary 
experience is something that people have gone through over and over and over again. And I think being able to reapproach that story and try to understand why that's happened and why it is that, you know, I, I do think that that's part of it. You know, and we also throw in a bunch of great music and horses and all these other wonderful things that we 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 love to celebrate. But um, it it's not uh, it it also has these deeper, richer, more complicated, darker themes that I think just keep pulling us back to it. It's important to have complexity. It's important. And I think, especially for the Blythe audience too, I would say that that's one of the things that I love so much about the Blythe audience is their hunger for complicated ideas, mm -hmm. that they come to the theater wanting to, wanting to see a great show, wanting to have a wonderful time, but also wanting to be able to talk about it all the way home at least, right? Yeah. I know that you've had a long, you, Gil, have had a long history with this, these these plays, this set of work, you keep coming back to it somehow uh, at various points in your career. Can you, like, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of reasons, um, artistically, personally. Uh, for one, um, I think part of it, I, I grew up, my, my father um, uh, had uh, a bunch of brothers. He had... <laughs> You know, uh, th there were um, six of them, and they uh, got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, and uh, and I remember as a kid being in awe of these men. Um, you know, they 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 took up a lot of space, and uh, you know, my. But I also remember, um, you know, as a kid, you know, uh, being in this apartment and walking out and, and seeing my father and his brothers like all you know under a, a haze of of blue smoke um uh arborite table just like pounding it and laughing till they're all red in the face and and um and they they had had a, a really rough upbringing um but they carried with them a kind of joie de vivre all of their lives that was so infectious and they were great storytellers all of them um and uh, a lot of inappropriate stories I probably shouldn't have heard as a kid, but um, still, it, it, it infected me with a sense of of uh, of reverence for that wildness, mm. um, which hasn't always served me well in life. But <laughs> um, uh, uh, when I learned to channel it more appropriately, um, it worked out. But you know that. So I think there, there's a, a personal piece that is attached to that, where I see that that sense of of that conversation of of who are these men and 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 um, why are they behaving the way that they are in the world um and how do you define yourself um in the world um in in hard circumstances um i think too you know the the figure of joanna donnelly is is such a powerful force right and and i've also had the great fortune of having some incredible uh matriarchs in my life too um you know, my own mother and and um, uh, and my my father's mother um, was a uh, she was actually a first generation Scottish immigrant um, who came over as a teenager by herself and was a, was a force. The 
those have been pieces. The other thing is the the more time that I spend with the Donnelly's story, and and there's all of these tangents to go off on. Like so, this play that I created in 2016 with Beth Cates and Paul Thompson, uh, the last Donnelly standing. Uh, which focused on Robert Donnelly. Robert Donnelly's story is incredible. So he actually um, uh, had just gotten out of prison before his parents were murdered. He was not at home when it happened. Uh, and while after the the murders happened, basically uh, all of the rest of the family got out of Lucan, Robert turned around and he bought a hotel on the main street um, of Lucan and uh, opened a bar and he would, uh, there's all these stories of him standing in the middle of the street um, uh, of Lucan and challenging these men who he knew to be members of this vigilante society to fight him. Um, And to me, the defiance of that, this incredible thing that he was um, in the the face of his grief. And, um, and then on top of that, so he did that for, he ran this this bar for two years, um, and he did actually have a street fight with James Carroll, who was the leader of the vigilantes. Um, and Robert, uh, uh, by the accounts of the day, beat up James Carroll in the middle of the street and was never charged for it, yeah. um, which is interesting. But then he packed up, um, he, he sold the hotel, and he went to Glencoe, Ontario, and he started a, a draft horse business. Um, and he became an incredibly wealthy man. He got like a, a, you know, a monopoly, basically unloading trains um, for the CNR. And then he um, went back to Lucan uh, in his later life, and he managed to, with all this money that he had made, he managed to buy back the fifty acres that his father had had taken from him. Wow! And he put the deed back together. So what is it about this story that appeals to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what is this about story that appeals to me? Um I think it's 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 that richness, right? Mm. I mean I think the fact that I can go off on on a hundred tangents about it is actually part of what keeps me there. Yeah. Right that there there are so many ways to to peel it apart and try to understand it. And to me that that's an essential piece of of the of the humanity mm-hmm. right is is that none of these stories are easy they're complicated all of these characters are complicated they've done awful things they've done amazing things um and that sense of 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 trying to understand like like i said at the very beginning the idea of the clemency that was shown to james donnelly after this murder to me that's so interesting because it tells me that the community is is complicated that their their yeah. their view of the world is complicated and they and they don't want an easy answer right it's not just about eye for an eye that they have a different perspective and to me that's well th- this amazing. is something that we're dealing with all the time too is that yeah. you know when you're living in a complicated world like the one we're in today we want to be able to sort everything into black and white mm. but it's not like you can't because exactly. there's every shade in between exactly so maybe is that the complexity that that's the complexity. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, and thank you for sharing all your thoughts and how you came to be so um, bonded with this story and about all the work and exciting things that have gone into the making of this new production. 
I know I was thrilled with what I saw on the stage last night, and I know that your audiences are really going to feel like they've experienced and witnessed something almost once in a lifetime to see these three shows all together in one summer. At the end of it, there's, there's a beautiful line that's part of this that is about the sacraments and the idea of, of what is sacred. And I think that the conclusion at the end of these stories is that what is, is sacred is family and community. And there's something ironic, maybe, in a way that the story is so tragic and so violently that, that, it, that it ends in these, these, these murders. And yet something I, I talked a lot with the cast about is the idea of uh, optimism and tragedy. I think we think of tragedy as being a very pessimistic, dark thing. But the only reason the story is tragic is because we think it should turn out a different way. And it's actually our deep hope, our deep optimism that makes us recognize injustice. It's actually only because we refuse to be nihilistic and instead that we believe that things should be different, that the tragedy hurts. So I think they're profoundly optimistic, hopeful plays in spite of their darkness or maybe in a way because of it. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us, Gil. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you. You've been listening to artistic director Gil Garrett here on the Blythe Festival podcast. Check out the other episodes in this series. They include part one of my Donnelly conversation with Gil and a chat with Chronicles of Sarnia playwright Matt Murray. Coming soon, we'll have a talk with playwright Andrew Moody about his play, The Real McCoy. And later this fall, we'll have an episode for you about a Huron County Christmas Carol This is a very funny, rural Canada-specific retelling of this beloved story, and it's returning to Blythe for the first time since COVID closed our theatres. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it and share it widely on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you could leave us a review and a rating. And finally, if you have a private comment or a suggestion about what you'd like us to cover here, please reach out to us on whatever channel is most comfortable for you. Connecting with our community is what Blythe is all about, so don't be shy. I'm Joanne Wallace. Until next time, thanks for listening.